0: So I don't know if you saw on my blog, but I actually, thanks to you and your inspiration, put a post on my blog about how
1: I actually started in TechCom. This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This episode was recorded January 20th, 2018. Today's guest is Alan J. Porter, a well, very prolific writer and content strategist based in Texas. Not only is he a content strategist, He writes about sci-fi, comics, pop culture, and more.
0: Let's put it this way. Growing up, I was, uh, from about the age of seven, I wanted to write, but um, I can't spell to save my life, Um, and unfortunately, there was no such thing as spell checkers back then, Um, so uh, I was actively discouraged from becoming a writer while I was at school, and I was told, uh, go be an engineer, because you like taking things apart, you like cars and planes and things like that, and ships and motorcycles, so go be an engineer. So uh, I I said, well, isn't there any sort of job that I could do both, you know, sort of write for engineers? And I was told very firmly that there is no job in the world that combines engineering and writing. Um, So I went went off to be an engineer and uh, I went to uh, college and studied marine engineering and was working in the British Merchant Marine on uh, container ships as an engineer which basically comprises of two eight-hour shifts of sitting in the engine room getting bored silly because they're nearly 90% automated and there's not, not a lot to do. Um, you sort of wait for stuff to go wrong. Um, so what do you do? The only thing to read is the tech manuals. Um, so I, I, I was reading these tech manuals thinking, well, somebody must write these. And I think I can do a better job than this. Um, and that sort of opened my eyes up to that there was this strange world called technical publications. Um so I, I, after I got out of the Merchant Marine, I went back to college for a second degree, and part of that, we had to do an industrial placement, and I was talking to my soon-to-be brother-in-law, um, saying, you know, this is what I'd really like to do, and he, he worked at British Aerospace in Bristol in the UK, where they built Concord, and he said, well, I think we've actually got a department called something like Technical Publications on site, I'll go to, and I know the guy who runs it. Um, and um, he... I ended up basically doing one of my industrial placements at, uh, the second of my industrial placements at British Aerospace, working in the tech post department for six months. And at the end of the six months, they were like, when you graduate, come back. Um, And that's how I got into technical publications, basically. And uh, my first job out of college was writing tech manuals for Concorde, which was pretty damn cool. Um, And then... um, It was literally in the days when cut and paste meant that you had an X-Acto knife and a tube of glue in your your desk drawer. Um, There was no computers, um, and I knew something about computers, because part of my degree had been computer science. Um, So I ended up becoming, sort of leading them into computerization. I ended up becoming the editor for a while, and then I ended up actually running the whole department. I ran a uh, tech pub shop of 100 plus people, authors, writers, spares, engineers, um, for a for quite a while um, and then a couple of my vendor companies were merging and they were putting together a new tech pub services company and they basically said, you want to come along and help us build this um, new tech pub services company? So I, I did that and I was actually reselling some graphic software that was based in the States, um, telling the company for years what they wanted needed to do with their graphic software and they called me up and said, uh, we're thinking of redesigning our product suite, you've been telling us." for years as VP of our user group, what we should do with it. Do you want to come and help? And I was like, well, if you sponsor me for a green card, I'm going to come for three years. And they said, okay. And um, we've been here 22 years now, so I think we we sort of like it. Um, <laughs> we've been in the States 22 years now. Um, and since then, I've sort of worked um, for various uh, vendors. Um, that company got bought and basically killed. So I've worked for various vendors in the tech pubs world around uh, content management systems, graphic software, publishing, um And then I ran my own um, consulting company, the 4Js Group, for like seven years, uh, doing content strategy, marketing, tech pubs. Um, And then through that, I ended up at Caterpillar um, as their content marketing manager for several years and took early retirement from there at the end of 2015. And then I've been working in um, content marketing and product marketing for the last couple of years. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite state of the art. I mean, this was uh, mid '80s, um, so uh, Concorde was getting towards the end of their life, but it's still everything was still done with um, you know paper and pen, and you know we we would write the uh, the stuff in longhand on legal pads, and and then it would go to a secretary or a typing pool, and they would type it up. And if we needed to squeeze an extra page onto an uh, extra line in there, they would ch- change the size of the electronic golf ball to bring the font down one step so we could get an extra line in. And not, and it was literally, uh, you know, um, cut and pasting, strict do, cutting, uh, printing pages out and cutting new pieces of text on and pasting them on to uh, think, uh, use uh, old phrases here like uh, lay marks, which were things for camera-ready copy, where you actually had the page laid out physically and then it went underneath the camera plate and they took a camera plate and then they printed it and it was all loose leaf. Um, so, yeah, everything was... Uh, huge loose leaf manuals we had a huge rack at the end of the uh, end of the building we had a huge building with this big library at the back you know if we needed to change anything we'd have to go into the rack and find that which pages were affected and stuff so it was so ripe for computerization because it, everything was you know manually manually done so yeah um and and from there we went into uh, that was just at the time of Airbus as well so we were um a big part of the Airbus consortium so we got involved with um bringing in computer systems. And that's really where I first got into markup. Um, I mean, we were doing SGML back then, but at the beginning we were still write, had, writing it on legal pads and actually handwriting the tags. And then somebody was sitting at a dumb terminal and, and putting it in. Um, so, uh, I, I got involved in the development of a lot of the early standards, which led to things like S 1000 D and dinner and stuff like that way back in the, I always joke. I could spell XML when it was a four letter word. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, we go we were doing our own tagging and schemas and stuff back then, with no idea of what was going to come down the line. It was just the best way to sort of pull in information from you know the the different um national teams that were working on Airbus because you had the English, the French, the Germans, and the Spanish all contributing content, so having a a, a neutral tagging schema was the sort of the best way to do that.
1: It's funny because when I started in technical communication, I started with Zyrite. I remember Zirite. <laughs> and I hated it. It was all this text-based stuff. And I was used to a GUI. I mean, I I had used WordPerfect for many years, but I used Word. And I'm like, why are we using all these codes to create content and and do it this way? It didn't make any sense to me. But it's ironic that now we are coming back to that and thinking about docs as code and things as...
0: Well, it was all SGML back then. It wasn't XML. Uh, XML wasn't even on the horizon. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, when I became manager of the uh, of the publications team, one of the first things I I did was say, you know, look, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Let's get it all computerized, and went out looking for SGML authoring and composition systems. Um, now we did, uh, so we went we looked at all the all the guys you were talking about, Xyrite, um, Compugraphic, um, Interleaf, all those guys. Um, we ended up buying a. a um, product from uh, Mentor Graphics, um, who are probably better known for um, integrated circuit board design um, software. But at that time, they actually had an SGML authoring um, tool that they'd actually really tuned around the needs for the aerospace industry because they were actually fairly close to uh, Boeing's headquarters. Um, So they actually had a really good Product and then they decided they were going to focus on integrated circuit design and they killed it, which was a was a shame because it was a good HTML product. Um, I also got um, to know um, and work with an HTML product out of France called Griff. I was actually their product man- UK product manager for a while. Um, so there, there was a lot of early HTML tools around that have sort of consolidated over the years, um, which which was interesting. But yeah, it was very much um, we. F- we, we could do that with our own sort of british aerospace aircraft we we had our own system but for the airbus ones we basically had a mainframe and done terminal system and um, where we would imp- we we built our own we had um two separate databases there was the authoring database where we would go in and add the tags and we would put in the effectivity you know that this piece of information applied to this tail number or this modification on the aeroplane and then there was a then there was a second database that took that Modification number and said, "Okay, that modification number is fitted to this these airplanes and these aerop- these particular airplanes are owned by this particular airline." And it would figure out and pull together the pieces to make the customized manual for for that for that airline. Um, and uh, that was actually pretty cool because it was pretty far thinking. Because the far th- forward thinking was, "Well, what happens if an airplane moves from one airline to another? We have to take that build." out of one set of customized manuals and put it into another set of customized manuals. Um, so it was pretty forward-thinking, but it was all home-built um, by by Airbus, but it was based around the whole SGML standard. And, yeah, so... Uh, and as they move forward, they've sort of, you know, that what we did there became the basis of um, what is... Ne- um, now, it became an ATA standard, an Airport Transport Authority standard, and then that became part of what is now uh, the military spec S1000D, which is used on both military and civil engineering projects. So,
1: Alan, I don't know much about S1000D other than it's a structured XML language similar to DITA. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Okay, I'm going to have to brush off a few cobwebs here because it's a while since I've used it. <laughs> but basically, basically, S1000D was a task-based task based schema. Um, so, you know, a bit like in DITA, you, you you have a topic. Well, in S1000D, it's a task. And a task basically moves you from sort of A to Z of actually doing a specific piece of um, task on a piece of equipment. And there's a numbering code that's based on the old ATA um, standard. Um, originally, the ATA books actually had standard chapter numbering, so it didn't matter whether you picked up a Boeing book or a British Aerospace book or an Aerospace book, if you wanted to know about the fuel system, you went to chapter 28. Uh, um, so they, that standard, which originally was just six letters for the, six num- numerics for the, the printed uh, documentation, ended up being like a 12 to 15 number, uh, standard standard numbering system, where you could actually apply it to individual tasks as opposed to chapters or systems. Um, um, so, And, and that, those became your building blocks that you then pulled together to build and deliver the manuals, um, either in print or, you know, when we were look, really looking ahead, we were getting into CD-ROM, which was the future. You know, that's where we were going um, with no view of what was actually going to come down. But the good thing was, because we were doing that, to an extent we were future-proofing, so when all these other uh, delivery systems came along, we actually had a good basic system. To be able to, uh, you know, everything was in a neutral format. Everything had a standard numbering schema around it, so you could actually take it and deliver it um, in 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 the new digital delivery channels as well. Yeah, I I was involved in um, a lot of the development of the early stuff. We, you know, we I was part of the uh, the Airbus groups who did the internal stuff, and then I was on several of the actual ATA. Uh, standards committees that help pull the stuff together as well. So, yeah, I was involved in uh, in a lot of that early development work um, and served on various ATA committees for about 10 years. Uh, ATA is a Transport Authority,
1: by the way. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes for sure because that's something – you know, the aerospace is – you know, it's something that, you know, I've always been a, a software tech writer, so I never think about, you know, the hardware side, you know, especially the hardware when it comes to aerospace and stuff like that. I know I've had one other guest who uh, worked for Boeing, but it's interesting, you know, to think of that techn- that techn- technical writing side that I guess not, a, you know, when the first thing – people think about as tech writers is software so for you to be back then with literally just you know discuss you know describing part by part how to put the plane together essentially it's crazy to me it's it's just you know how big of a team did you have and you know how Um, many well like i said what was uh, that like
0: my tech pubs department was 100 people oh um, my goodness which was probably i'm going back to the early 90s now but was probably i think probably 40 writers and then i had about about a dozen illustrators, because we did all the technical illustration stuff as well. Mm. Um, And then probably about 30 spares engineers, because we used to do the illustrated parts catalogs as well as the manuals. Um, Jeez. um, So that's literally a breakdown of every part that's on an airplane, where it's located, its part number, how many you should have, what it's attached to. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, um, and then... Just sort of, you know, then just sort of admin staff and librarians and stuff like that. Yeah, so it was around 100. Then I had numerous um, sort of subcontract companies that sort of helped us through the peaks and troughs. I think at one stage okay. we were looking after 12 different air- aircraft um, in wow. my department. So, uh, yeah, we were shipping something. We were publishing something new every two days. Um,
1: <gasps> Holy cow.
0: Yeah, because um, each airplane has like a 90-day revision cycle. But then there was like...
1: Oh, wow.
0: Something happened. You'd put out a, a a service bulletin or a temporary revision if something important happened. Um, so, yeah, there, there was always stuff being published every couple of days. It, it was a, it was a high pressure, high profile. Yeah, um, no kidding. So, I mean, just get, to go back to your point about uh, tech pubs and software, that's one of the things with my background that does bug me when I'm at STC <laughs> or listening to folks talk about technical writing and they're just talking about software, it's like you do realize that there are thousands of other technical writers who don't write software documentation. They write stuff for physical things, be it you know your IKEA mm-hmm. instructions to cars, planes, trains, <laughs> <laughs> um, your washing machine, whatever. There are tech writers who... Are writing stuff about hardware and there's probably just as many or more than there is in software documentation but a lot of folks i notice when they talk about tech writing they just mean software documentation so mm. i'll get off my soapbox now <laughs>
1: <laughs> no you know what I'm, I, I hate to admit it but i'm guilty of it yeah. too so um, you know i you know i like i said the first thing you think about when people say tech writer is you think it's a guy writing about mm-hmm. software but you know so it's I guess the difference is, now, were you able, did you have to go to the plane physically? You and your team and your writers have to go to the plane and, and describe it or, you know, take pictures of every part? Or did you have to go through the plane and document everything? Or was it kind of handed to you? How did that all come together? Um,
0: yeah, we sort of did. Um, I mean, mainly it was engineering drawings. Um basically and i 've noticed this even when I was at caterpillar, even though I wasn 't in tech pubs, I was actually sitting next to the tech pubs people, so I, you know i 'd go obviously in my background go and talk to them and even there until uh, so recently, basically you know a package of engineering drawings comes in with something that you need to document and you have to work your way through the engineering drawings and figure out what needs to be done, how it goes together, how that affects the you know the, the piece of equipment um, and then write it about that now at um when i was at caterpillar we actually in the building we we were in we actually had a tear down lab downstairs where they would bring in the new excavator or the new uh you know tractor or whatever and they would literally tear it down and take photographs and you know um go through the whole you know write down the whole process with the, with the machine there uh, not so easy to do with an airplane um what we did <laughs> what, what we did at aerop- when i was at really share space one of the things that um that I instigated um, was a uh, on aircraft verification program, so we would actually write the documentation but then I would send a um, tech author to the south of France to the final assembly line at Airbus and he would sit there with the documentation that we 'd done and actually go through and see and mm. um, we did like a, a two week rotation somebody would go out for two weeks and then somebody else would go out for two weeks and so forth, which was great because it actually also got the tech mm. authors' Into the, envir- the assembly and manufacturing environment, and they could actually see the, the thing mm. coming together as well as just working. Because when you're working off engineering drawings, you don't always get the context of where that piece of thing fits in <laughs> what's around <laughs> it, or even silly things okay. like how high off the floor it is. I, I remember one of my tech writers um, put together a, a, a topic on uh, changing. Uh, you have, when the sort of some, a lot of aeroplanes have a, um, a fan that you can drop out that actually if the uh, auxiliary power unit fails, they can actually drop a little fan out the, out of the, the belly and it has a little propeller on it. And the idea is that the, the wind would basically spin the propeller up and then recharge the auxiliary power unit. Oh,
1: um, wow.
0: And he, he wrote a, oh, a piece geez. about how you would maintain that. And the first thing he wrote was, you know, put a, a six-foot um, gantry underneath to stand on. And I was like, you do realise this thing comes out of the belly of the aeroplane <laughs> and there's actually... You know, once it's down, there's actually only four foot of clearance. A guy stood on the ground could actually maintain it. But, but he'd looked at the engineering drawing, and the engineering drawing, you know, looked like it was a six foot gap. So, um, you know, actually getting folks out onto the assembly line or the manufacturing line was uh, was a, a huge plus, um, and it was good from a quality point of view as well. You know, that we could actually check what we were doing. So, a bit like QA in software, you know, but you're actually doing it with a <laughs> with a big piece of equipment. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, very large piece of equipment. So when you moved to Caterpillar, I mean, did you realize, hey, you know, I like the uh, hardware side of it? Was it or was it just kind of that's just kind of where your career led uh, you? I mean, that's, to these big big hardware yeah, companies, that, essentially.
0: I, I do like big machines. I'll be honest. Um,
1: <laughs> I love
0: machines. Um, so I like being around them. I like I like being around people who are around them. At Caterpillar, I was actually my job was actually in the marketing side, but uh, I, I definitely. But it was more technical marketing. Um, my, my team um, ran basically all the content systems that de- delivered stuff to Caterpillar's digital platforms like cat.com or their e-commerce site. And we did a lot of stuff around um, developing uh, virtual 3D models for augmented reality and stuff like that. So even though I was on the marketing side, we were still very heavily into the technical stuff and working with the machines and getting an understanding of the machines and stuff. I I now know now know more about soil and how to dig soil than I ever felt I ever needed to. <laughs> um, but uh, that was yeah, that was a fun gig. Um, so yeah, I I just like being around machines, but I I love software too. I think um, you know technology, computers, and digital stuff is equally fascinating. And I. The, the combination of where, where we're going with the the two working together, um, I, I find is uh, mm. you know, very interesting as to the the dynamic as to you know what what's a an owned piece of machine as opposed to a leased piece of software and where does the software where does that <laughs> interface physical and digital <clears throat> interface sort of fit and how does it work together um, and it's interesting that a lot of companies are not really thinking about that digital physical interface they're not seeing that there's a handoff between the two or that the two are, are, are so tightly integrated. It's, oh, we do this digitally, we do that in the, in the real physical world, but they don't think it, from a customer mm. experience point of view, they don't think about the fact mm. that, that 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 sort of experience should be a seamless handoff, or that the things should work together. Um, I, one of the stories I, I tell um, when I'm at conferences and stuff around this is my fridge a few months ago, uh, about six months ago, developed a leak. Um, mm. <clears throat> so I Went online um, to see if I was still in warranty, and you know, I, I put in my you know um, my account number and the fridge I had, and it was like, yeah, you're still in warranty. Uh, still in warranty. What's the matter? And I was like, it's got this leak, and they're like, okay, uh, to verify this, we need the serial number of the fridge. So I was like, okay, went out to the kitchen, opened the fridge, found numbers on every sticker I could, put them into the website. <laughs> Kept coming back, not valid number, not valid number, not valid number. So I was like, okay, so there was a 1-800 number. I called them, and they're like, uh, yeah, you do need your serial number so we can validate the warranty. I'm like, great, where's the serial number? She says, on a sticker on the fridge. I was like, yeah, where on the fridge? She said, on the back of the fridge. Hmm. You mean the back of the fridge that's against the wall with a bunch of cabinets around it? Yeah. Yeah, so you're basically telling me to dismantle kitchen cabinets and pull my fridge out so I can find the the, the sticker with a serial number on it that you want me to input into your website so you'll validate my warranty. I was like, that ain't going to happen. I'm not dismantling half my kitchen just to... So why don't you put the sticker inside the fridge door? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, So, you know, it's this, this thing is, you know, they want it for the website, but they didn't give any thought as to where that information was on the physical device.
1: All right, someone, there was a gap there. Someone yes. missed. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, we just, um, we have a Google Home and we, um, we have the Philips Hue system with the lights. It's it's pretty amazing. And we basically have outfitted our entire house now with these Philips Hue lights, but I just got three of them yesterday from my office. And, you know, it's the Google Home is like, oh, well, you have to add these. Um, so go to, you know, go to add devices or whatever, and I hit the plus sign, and it's like, okay, well, you're already registered with Philips Hue, so, you know, you you have to unlink your, de- basically, it's unlink your device was the only option. So, of course, I go and Google it, and you look, and everyone's like, yeah, I had to unlink and relink, and I had to rename everything, and, of course, halfway down, it's like, yeah, all you have to do is go to say, okay, Google you know, um, sync Philips Hue, and it adds the new light bulbs. And, of course, no one tells you this, and it's counterintuitive in the app. So it's, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it's uh, it's not less limited to the physical world, but it's frustrating that, that experience of, oh, okay, like you said, the physical with the, with the digital, you know, so there's apparently some disconnect there still. I yeah, I, I,
0: like. I, generally because they're in two completely separate siloed parts of the company, um, mm. you know, it's... <laughs> That they're not really talking and, and you know more and more companies are talking about trying to think about this you know a seamless customer experience it doesn't matter who in the company you, you're talking to or where you should it should be the, a, you know a a good customer experience uh, and consistent one but then they they don't think about this you know as I said this digital and physical handoff so uh, you yeah, that's an area that really interests me is getting that improved.
1: Now, what kind of digital is there? Like, is there in like a Caterpillar or something, one of their products, like a Bulldozer or whatever? Is there, you know, have they included, you know, like tablet interfaces or UIs or anything oh, in those kind of products? Oh, yeah. They
0: are, some of them are very, very sophisticated digital machines. Um, you do know that actually Caterpillars has autonomous vehicles for way longer than all of these self-driving cars and stuff. There are actually mining trucks. There are, huh. there are autonomous mining trucks that weigh Hundreds of tons that, that basically drive themselves around mining sites for 24 hours with no drivers. Um, um, they do uploads. There's a, actually a great monitoring center in the building I used to work at at Caterpillar where basically the, a lot of the equipment, um, it's real-time telemetry and uploads, and they, the guy sitting in Illinois in yeah. like can see what a truck's doing in Australia or whatever. So, um, yeah, they Wow. Um, the interesting thing you, you're talking about, I mean, the physical digital interface, is um, they've changed a lot of the, the modern um, equipment to be like, um, instead of levers for controls, and they're actually, most of them are joysticks now because of the of the generation that's now oh. driving them and operating the machines <laughs> is used to having a joystick, <laughs> so they're actually moving away oh from lever God. controls to, to joystick controls and, and um, screens, yeah. Um, some of them are great. They can, they can figure out you know, what sort of, how many passes they need to do, what angle the blade is going to be at, and the machine can figure that out and figure out the, multiple, the optimum number of passes to level ground of a certain size and stuff like that. The, yeah, Caterpillar is very big into digital, and um, as I said, my team was involved in developing or helping develop some of the sort of um, augmented reality um, proof of concept stuff as well.
1: Well, that must have been yeah,
0: fun. Yeah. But again, it was interesting there, talking about the digital physical interface, one of the questions that I was always mm. asking was, what about the content? It was great to do a hm. physical, you know, a, an augmented reality prototype that showed, you know, a mechanic taking, a, you know, how to take a part or service, um, you know, a skid steer or something. Um, but it was great to do that as a one-off, but how are you going to scale the huge volume of technical mm. documentation so it can present be presented in that sort of format because it's a very different way of approaching a task. It's much more of a very shorter step, a lot, a lot, a lot more shorter steps than you would put in a manual. It's mm. also a lot more basic information. Like mm. in the manual, it would be you know remove panel one two three four. Well, in augmented reality, it's like you have to know where the panel is, what sort of screws it is. Maybe show a screwdriver going into it to show which way to am- Oh, wow. um, you know. So it's, there's a lot more steps involved and then how do you actually scale the content to deliver that and then how do you deliver it with a machine are you, are you going to send a set of augmented reality glasses with every machine that comes off the production line or are you going to make it an upsell added on bonus uh-huh. um, so this, this whole internet of things is great but the whole idea of how you scale the content to drive the ultimate experience I don't think anybody's quite worked out yet
1: Huh, that's, I mean, I was thinking, you know, you don't think about that. I was like, okay, you know, I mean, be. oh, you send, you know, one line of text at a time in a task kind of thing, you know, as a structured thing. Okay, you send one line of task at a time, but you're right. How do you, you know, how do you say, oh, here, you need this screwdriver or that? It's just, I mean, I you're, just, you're, the, th- yeah. the possibilities are amazing. I mean, it's just, I'm trying to process this and think about all the ways that you could do this in so many different ways. That must be. My God, I, it's a completely different way of thinking about. Content. It is,
0: and a different, completely different way about thinking about the task because you tend to make certain assumptions about the level of knowledge of of people. Um, you know, again, in the aerospace industry, um, depending on where you were selling the airplanes, um, depending on the number of how you put in what level of information that you put in. So, again, with things like XML and HTML, that's where you start coming up with putting conditional text around it. You know, this is for an expert. This is for, mm. a, you know, this is for a beginner. This is for somebody who's who's passed, you know, maintenance course one, two, three. And this is for a guy who's, you know, only been at the company for six months and isn't allowed to, you know, work on fuel systems or, or whatever, you know. so um And then that mm. goes into things like how do you match that to maybe somebody's login, you know, when they log into the maintenance system, it's like, oh, I know who you are, I know what you've taken courses you've passed, therefore you'll get this this sort of content, this simpler content, and then, oh, you're an expert, you've been here 15 years and you know everything, you're only going to get the, you know, the basic tool, you know, the high level um, information, because you don't need the detailed stuff as to, you know, where the panels are or stuff like that, because you know it, because you've been through xyz mm. training course so it's um yeah the, the whole idea of doing this in terms of personalization and putting intelligence around the content i think is uh is a real uh, a real challenge but a real interesting direction mm. that we're going with with content but it does think you have to think about content in a completely different way make it much more modular much more molecular and put a lot more mm. metadata around it um, which is where the intelligent content thing comes in and which is what i'm really excited about with the new role at Simple A is is this whole idea of uh, driving stuff through intelligent content and making the content more intelligent and the content more self-aware of where it fits within the, the overall scheme of things um, through metadata or, or good content models.
1: So how granular do we have to be now and how do we have to as writers, how do we have to think now to say, okay, you know, this is this could be used in a manual or it could be used online or it could be used by a mechanic you know with the augmented reality glasses or google goggles or whatever it is how you know how granular how much how much micro content do we have to think about now is it sentence by sentence is it you know paragraph by par- how granular are we i going? mean it could be if you i mean
0: you're talking about google glass and what was um, i think that the limit there was 64 characters on the first iteration of google glass uh, um, okay i may be wrong on that maybe it may have been more than that but it was a very small amount of real estate Um, And you think about the sort of, you know, the amount of real estate that's available on your phone or, you know, as we move towards augmented reality and think, you know, heads up displays in your spectacles or whatever, the amount of real estate to present something is getting smaller and smaller. So, yeah, you have to think in more and more granular stuff. Um, You know, I I was on a call the other day, somebody was talking about something, you know, information 4.0 and molecular content um, going down to very short pieces of of content that you have to think about. so you know, I mean, I I actually think uh, things like Twitter and that are a great um, training ground for doing things like that.
1: <laughs> um, I always say every tech
0: writer should be on Twitter. I hate hate the fact they've gone up from one hundred and forty to two hundred and eighty characters because actually trying to figure I out see, like how to say something concise and get the meaning over in one hundred and forty characters was great training to get towards using granular uh, producing granular mm. uh, content. Um, and of course, you've got the other thing about thinking about content that's going to be reused. You can't um, use a a lot of uh, statements like, you know, you can't say as above or as earlier or see below or, you know, because Mm. you've got to be able to take that piece of content and look at it completely divorced from anything else and still understand it and understand what it's talking about. Um, uh, And realize that, you know, it may be step two in your process, but in somebody else's process, it may be step four. Um, Mm. (laughs) So you've got to... Again, put a lot of metadata around it, and a lot of management around where that piece, that content, ends up being used, which is something we don't always have control of. Um, You know, once it's out on the on the web, it can be picked up, copy and pasted, put into wherever. Um, So you don't always these days you don't have necessarily have control of that final delivery mechanism. Yeah. That's
1: for yeah. sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I, um, I make sure that, you know, because you never know. It's trying to future proof, like as below or see the following. It's like you never know where that content is going to be. So, you know, it's, I, I try to eliminate that as much right. as possible in my docs because you never know how it's going to be assembled in the future or, you know, how we're going to reuse this yeah. stuff. But, um, and, and
0: when you start adding in things like chat, chat bots and that, you know, they're going to pull information from
1: your yes, content and yes. use them in it,
0: hopefully, in a conversational mode. Um, which could be in, in a completely different order than the way that, that you thought about it. So
1: now with something this granular, with something that micro content, you know, how much of a hassle is it to maintain that? And how much time are you basically writing sentences and how much time are you structuring each you know, each paragraph or, you know, using thinking about each one for reuse? How much time are you doing the mechanics of it as opposed to the writing when it's that You know, I mean I use Ditta and I know how much time I spend thinking about it but at that level, I, I mean, you're. Re, I mean, are you creating con refs for everything, or you, is everything have an ID? I mean, what's the level of investment and in time to do all? that? Well, I think at that level, everything
0: needs some sort of ID, some sort of unique ID, so you can you can track it, manage it, keep it in a content management system. So say you, you know you may end up with a short piece of, of content, but it has tons of metadata around it. So it may be more more of the thought is not necessarily uh, around writing the actual piece of step but more of the thought of around is what's the metadata I need to know to be able to put around this that mm. makes sure it stays with the right product and goes okay. to the right market and, oh. you know, uh, is in the okay. right languages uh, and so it's probably going to I think we're going to shift to more um, thinking around the metadata and the intelligence that you're adding to the content as much as the content which sort of you know brings me to my sort of soapbox of why tech writers shouldn't be writers anymore because there's way more to the job than actually writing. Um, uh, Cruz has actually a great, a great uh, phrase which I, I, I'm going to be pushing mightily over um, after I, when I join the company um, is content engineering. Um, I think that's where we're moving. We're not technically mm. we're not tech writers anymore. I think we're more content engineers, and that's what we got to start thinking around. Is uh, you know, content is you create the content, you create the content widget, but then you've got to engineer where it's going to end up. And how are you going to make sure that the right piece of content ends up in the right place to the right customer at the right time?
1: Hmm. Yeah, okay. So that's that was my next question is, you know, well, sometimes I feel like, okay, um, you know, Oxygen, my XML editor, basically adds an ID to pretty much everything. I'm like, well, this is kind of getting in my way. I mean, not that it, you know, it's just another piece of clutter on the screen kind of thing, but it sounds like we're going to need that. More and more that yes, it's a good thing that it's literally putting an ID on every bullet, at every bulleted list, and every paragraph, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I think so. And then the more you, you could, I mean, the idea you really shouldn't be getting in the author's way. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that should be automated and in the mm. background. You know, the, you know, the, what you should be looking at is this, the subject matter expert expert. Being able to, you know, as I say, put the things around. You know, is this the right product? Is this the right version of the product? Is this the right version of the product? To, you know, does this apply to the product sold in France? Does this apply to the product sold in Africa? Does this apply? You know, hmm. um, or hmm. even the opposite. And this is sort of one of the things we hit. Uh, uh, I hit at Caterpillar is where should it not be used? Um, you know, when you've got a piece of content that's, that's going to a hmm. global audience, there may be certain. Um, cultures where you actually can't use that piece of content or particularly an image you've got to be really careful of that sort of thing so you've got to put metadata mm. around it that says you know you can use this in these markets but you should never use it in this market so again that's a lot of subject matter expertise comes in and you have to stop engineering the content to, to sort of meet those
1: deliverables mm. as, as we become more digital and more global. Uh, It's been a while since Alan and I have spoken due to some some audio errors and some apathy and some personal things happening. So, Alan, I appreciate your patience. Uh, I know we have a lot to catch up on. We've actually met at Lobacon in New Orleans this year. And, of course, the most importantly, probably, when we first spoke, you were just about to start your new job at A and uh, it's been almost a year now. So definitely would like to hear about what's happening in your world there and kind of what you've learned since then.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's been an eventful year. Uh, you're right. I think last time we spoke we on our first uh, go-round on the podcast, uh, it was literally the day before my first official day at A, if I remember rightly. Um, so yeah, it's been a, an incredible year there. Um, we the company is growing quickly. The work's growing quickly, um, and uh, been really working with a lot of really great companies, helping them solve their content problems. So I, my sort of role evolves slightly. I now uh, we sort of rebranded the my area of the company, and we're now the uh, I now had the uh, Content Intelligence Strategy Practice to give it its uh, its formal formal name. Um, we sort of did a little bit of a rebrand, actually at Lavacon or just after Lavacon, um, when we. And um, the idea really is that uh, my team works with our major strategic clients in helping them develop a content intelligence strategy and helping them put that together and drive it through. Um, we have over the last eleven months uh, worked with a lot a variety of very large companies in high technology, healthcare, insurance, um, and a bunch of other things, some of which I can't really talk about. Um, <laughs> but uh, in, in to really uh, get some major corporations, we're talking, you know, sort of, sort of you know, Fortune 10, Fortune one hundred, fifty, Fortune 100 companies, um, pretty much all household names, um, get to grips with content as an asset, taking a holistic view of Mm. content and looking at moving um, them towards um, the the concepts of structured content uh, reuse and seeing content as an asset. Um, So it's been a very interesting 11 months. Um, I would say that uh, one of the, you know, the things we've learned is that uh, some of the organizations that you think would really have a handle on content when you really (laughs) get under the covers don't um that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Um and you know there are there are some names who uh you know um talk about things and then when you get in there you find that they don't necessarily practice what they preach and I will say is hey, a little bit guilty of that mainly because we're a small company growing quickly <laughs> um <laughs> but uh it is very interesting and it, it's I, I've learned a lot about a lot of inter- industries Um learned a lot about, uh, even though I've worked in major corporations, it's interesting to see the way that uh, different major corporations work and handle um, and how content really is viewed across the organization. Um, we've really sort of, our clients have really fallen into two real areas. One tends to be where we brought in more on the marketing side when they're looking to um, move towards personalized content. Um, you know, they, they may have had the CEO saying, "Oh, we need to deliver personalized content," or uh, you know, the CMO is like, "Oh, we've got to put more content out there," uh, or, and they've not really, not really defined what that means. Um, so, you know, um, the, the, a lot of those organizations, you know, they can't even spell XML. Um, they've they never really thought about content as a structured way. way. Uh, you know, in some cases, their content is sort of, for one of a better word, held hostage by advertising and creative agencies or localization companies, Um, you know, content. They never really thought about content as being a thing. They're more around building campaigns, you know, doing artistic stuff, winning awards. Winning awards, therefore everything they do should be perfect and a Picasso. uh, um, And walking in and saying, that's great, but how are you going to reuse that? Um, if If you're looking at personalization, you have to structure it. You have to start putting metadata around it. Things they'd never thought about. Things they'd never even thought about. So that that's interesting because it's not just the technical challenge of getting into the detail uh, XML stuff, but it's actually doing a lot of educational and mindshare stuff. Um, I, you know, I can't really count the, the amount of times I've whiteboarded the difference between unstructured and structured content so far this year. Um but it's great because it's great to start. I, I love doing that and sort of doing that educational process, teaching people about content as an asset, and seeing the light bulbs go off. You know, and we get, you know, and we're getting to the stage now. I'm now working with with one major uh, corporation where they're they're actually, you know, actively out recruiting to put together a content services organization, centralized content services organization to drive content as an asset across the organization and, and uh, pull folks in you know in, in other areas we've you know we've we've gone into the marketing folks and literally introduced them to the te- the their the technical pe- publications people within their own organization um actually you know literally gone out and got somebody and dragged them into a conference room and said this is your tech dot guy he knows about structured content he's been doing it for x number of years um so building those internal bridges and sort of facilitating that has is, 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 is been fun too. And then sort of our other client, the other side of our clients is the folks who really are pretty sophisticated around structured content and XML and maybe realizing they're not doing it, using it as efficiently as they could be, or, you know, that realizing that, hey, we're in tech pubs, we've got this asset, you know, we're seeing all these people saying, you know, technical tech pubs should be, a, you know, it could be used for marketing, how can we help spread uh, and, uh you know sort of spread that that message internally so um it's it's yeah it's been a, an interesting mix um at the moment and uh, really enjoyable from both sides both with the uh, the marketing folks who are in the educational mindset and with the tech com folks helping them actually sort of realize their value within the organization
1: yeah i can imagine working with the marketing folks i went to car- content marketing world a few years ago Um, and I've also had a content marketer on, uh, on the podcast previously. And, you know, she's like, you know, she's handing off, you know, word documents essentially. And I can't imagine what that must be like if you're dealing with, like you said, a bunch of freelancers or you're working on a particular campaign and you're getting your, your content from a third party or even maybe a fourth party. Uh, you know, you typically in word content, how do you, you know, how do you tell those people, you know, obviously content and asset are how do you, how do you tell them that XML is not a four letter word anymore?
0: Yeah, it is actually interesting. Uh, Chris Sanders, from A, who you've already had on the co- podcast, he has a slide in his current slide that, that basically says, you know, uh, the concept moves around the way that content moves around the organization is, and then he puts up Microsoft Word.
1: Um, <laughs> I think I've seen that slide.
0: Um, so uh, you know, that, that that's the truth. Um, you know, when I used to work in disaster recovery, um, the few years I spent in that, we used to we we estimated that sixty to seventy percent of a, a company's intellectual property existed as Word attachments in, in email. I mean, it wasn't just Word. It was Word attachments that weren't managed anywhere other than they were just floating around in the email system. Um, yes,
1: I've, I've encountered that as well to this day.
0: Yeah. So uh, one of the things is is really not to go in and say you've got to throw out Microsoft Word and everybody's got to start using an XML editor because that's never going to happen. <laughs> right. um, you, you're never going to get rid of those silos. It, it really is a question of educating that, you know, you've got a business need. You want to you drive personalization? How are you going to do that? How, how are you actually going to deliver mm. that content? You know, um, you've been told you've got to do chatbots. How are you actually going to take the content that you've got? Is it suitable for a conversation? How are you going to break it down mm. into those little chunks? Oh, little chunks of content? Well, how about if you do that in an organized, structured way? Um, you know, and that sort of starts the conversation. We we don't tend not to talk about XML until we're well into the engagement. Okay. Um, it really is a question of, What's the business objective at the end? Where are we trying to get to? How can we take what you're doing today? Um we do and we do a lot of discovery process. We have a, you know, a fairly deep discovery process we, we where we really dig into, you know, the current process and, and the things, the tools they're using. And the more we find that they're using Word, you know, it it tends to be, you know, even if they have templates, most people aren't using them. Um <laughs> you know stuff gets stored everywhere you know how can you find stuff that you've already written um you know are you paying your agencies multiple over and over again for recreating the same information with just you know a couple of words different or if it's a piece of artwork a couple of pixels different or whatever you know um have you really put any cost around this and we also tend to find that you know when people have different pieces of technology that the main way that the content is moving from one platform to the other is cut and paste from word into a template into whatever um i think one of the uh, the clients we did we found that uh, their authors and these was in the healthcare industry so these were highly paid authors a lot of them were like doctors were spending 50 40 to 50 percent of the time doing nothing more than moving content oh. cut and pasting from word into systems and we tend to find that most companies, it's around 30% of the time is just being spent moving stuff around. So you, you can have those sort of business related discussions without even mentioning XML. It's like, right. You know, we can help you define better ways of doing this. So you can actually take that content, create it once, reuse it, move it around the systems, build bridges to the systems, have it move between the systems. And oh, by the way, the technology to do that is something called XML, but don't worry about it at the moment. <laughs> this is, you know, we'll we'll help you figure out the the uh the business process for doing it first um, and then we get into the xml discussion
1: yeah when we meet with our clients and they're all internal but of course they're not technologists you know we tell them that we put it into either our structured format or our source format and they kind of understand that so like yeah we, we as much as possible leave the xml and the data out of it but um <clears throat> thankfully people get it and they understand that it takes time to convert but uh we have actually found that there's a word to DIDA plugin. I think, um, it was, oh God, who wrote it? Um, anyhow, I'll put it in the show notes, but a great, um, word to DIDA conversion process that does with styles. It's a plugin to the DITA open toolkit. And, uh, I found that really, really useful for taking word stuff and, and converting it into DIDA pretty easily.
0: Uh yeah, and there's a there's a few of them out there that do that and I, I know some of the CCMSs they have now are looking at, you know, coming out with word like interfaces on them for, mm. for you know, we're, we're definitely in the um we're seeing the, the sort of the rise of the uh the subject matter expert author rather than necessarily the the dedicated technical author. Um, particularly in some of the mm. you know, as well in the in the marketing space as you're moving folks to uh structured content, um You know, you really need to figure out a way to actually enable those uh, subject matter experts and the people who are, you know, experts in their industry or understand that, you know, their customer base, how to write uh, structured content in a way that, uh, you know, can then be reused without having to sort of retrain them all to be tech authors because we don't want them to do that anyway.
1: True. But I think, you know, the good news for me is that, you know, after 25 years in the business, people are finally coming around to realize that content is actually an asset now. And it's, uh you know, I think it's kind of exciting. And I think 2019 uh, has a lot of promise in that regard. And like, hey, people are finally seeing, um you know, the like, again, the value of what we're doing or the value of the content and using it or reusing it as an asset in the firm and not just in the tech pubs department.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's, it's I think we, we talked about this before, but it, it really is one of my areas uh, of focus, having worked in, you know, a foot in both camps in both tech pubs and marketing that, uh, right. you know, this idea that uh, we can all learn from each other. And it's not just those areas too, you know, all, all across the organization, you know, um, the folks in finance have content that can be an asset that can be used by the customer, you know, uh, you know a, a, an invoice could be a great marketing tool. Um, if, huh. if you think about, the way that you you what content you put on it, um, well, that's true, you, yeah. you know every you know every call to the customer call center should be you know a brand is a is a brand experience. So you know are you giving the same answer on the you know on the hotline as you are in the chat bot as you are in the tech doc? Does that match with the white papers? Does you know um, so you know that has to be consistent um, and really customer experience is really the only differentiator these days. Pretty much every product is a commodity. Um, mm. Um, so customer experience really um, a lot of people don't shop on based on price anymore they shop based on customer experience and brand loyalty um and uh, you know what drives customer experience and the customer engagement it's content be it text video imagery audio um you know content really is the thing that differentiates any, any company these days um and a lot of a lot of companies are starting to realise it. Um, they may be realising it in pockets here and there. Uh, and where where we a I think really differentiate ourselves is it, you know we tend to be bought in to help solve or drive one particular business uh, need. But when we come in, we're like, okay, we'll you know we can work on that. But how is that going to fit within the holistic view of content across the organisation and the enterprise? And let's make sure that whatever we we don't design another silo to solve one particular business need. Let's think about how we can actually design a a solution for that business need in a way that can be expanded and used across the organization. So we'd like to take that holistic view.
1: Right. And I I know when uh, we had Cruz on and we had a great conversation, I'll also link to that in the show notes, he was saying that, you know, they were trying to get content into the C-suite. And now is that, I mean, I'm curious to know where this, uh, realization of content as an asset is coming from. Is it coming from the tech pubs department? Is it coming from the marketing? Is it coming from c 3 Is it coming from somewhere else? Where do you find that coming from? Um,
0: it's, it tends to be a combination. Um, I will actually say it's coming from the customer. I think it comes back to customer experience. Oh, okay, it's changing in customer behaviours, customers' expectations. Um, I think a lot of it's driving f- from that. It is interesting that certainly throughout the year we have seen our points, our sort of project sponsors, uh, get r- grander and grander titles. We actually just <laughs> just um, started a, a project with a with a new customer, um, and our project sponsor there is the CEO, and he wants to be involved in the workshops oh, nice. and and staff as we drive forward. So you know that literally has top down. Um, sponsorships. So, uh, you know, we've seen a couple where we, you know, the the sponsorships come from the CMO or VP level. So we're we're starting to see more and more of that awareness as as we drive forward, um, which is great. Um, But I think a lot of it really is coming from the the customer expectations, you know, to to engage uh, with and keep ongoing relationships with the customers is, you know, what do the customers want? What questions do they want answered? How do they want um, the man said, in, "It is interesting because you know several years ago it used to be, oh, you know the the CEO's got an iPad and says we must have a website that works on an iPad, <laughs> uh, um, and, and now it is getting more to like I said, uh, primarily things like you know how can we deliver the right content in personalised for the right customer segment mm. or the right series of customers." Um, so. D- there definitely seems to be that customer viewpoint is is really driving it, and it also helps if you have folks internally from tech pubs and marketing mm. also, uh, you know, spreading the message that content is an asset. And then hopefully it can sort of meet somewhere in the middle, uh, and you can find those sponsors who've got budget to to actually make, you know, um, identify projects that can actually drive business value through content and actually yeah, get budget for it. So.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about a little bit, you know, going back to the education side, because education is big for me. I used to teach marching band and I used to love it, uh, you know, when the light bulb went off, like you said, the light bulbs goes off. And I've been trying to do that internally. And you see people like like finance people, I work in the finance field, you see these finance people get excited about content and it's like, and structure and like, wait, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, it's 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 really exciting to see that, you know, that people are seeing this and seeing the value of it. And. You know, why don't you tell me or tell us a little bit about maybe some of those light bulbs that you've had gone off? Like, oh, at a certain point in someone's education, like, oh, this all makes sense now. Do you have any uh, good success stories? Um, Yeah,
0: actually, you've probably seen the slide as well. We actually have a wonderful slide that we uh, we found for a particular client. We were talking uh, based on a story there. We were talking to them, and they they were basically, uh, you know, we have these product offers and we'd like to get them out you know uh, and internationalize them and globalize them and get them out across 50 countries and you know we want them in three email channels and stuff like that. And it's like okay well, well let's do the math and it's like so we found out that uh, you know they had like one concept this idea of a piece of content called an offer and then they sort of put that into like five different product bundles um, mm-hmm. and then you know each of those five product bundles went across three channels and then they went in different variants and 50 different language, 50 different sort of languages. And it's like, so that's, uh, we did the math and that actually turned out to be 18,900 and something variants of that one piece of content.
1: Oh my goodness. Um,
0: but, and it's like, okay, to actually get to what you want to do, you're going to have to manage that. And it's like, and think about the cost. If that costs you, I don't know, mm. you know, it costs you $500 to produce that piece of content. And you think good would, you know, that's it. We're done. And it's like okay, but each time you copy and paste that somewhere, um, eighteen thousand times, and maybe it costs you fifty—I don't know, a hundred dollars—to you know put that into each of those different channels, and maybe do the translation bit and stuff. It, say each instance costs you a hundred dollars. Suddenly, that's you know one point eight million dollars to support a five hundred dollar piece of software, um piece of content that you haven't and en- you haven't engineered. If you'd have engineered that up front. With reuse in mind, with localization in mind, with the right <sighs> metadata, so you could auto so it could go to each channel automatically and st- how much would you be saving that's a light bulb moment, you know um, okay. you know it's like oh yeah, if we thought about this the thing is to get people thinking about content up front as an asset and get them thinking about how to engineer the content for reuse for localization for different channels for different delivery. Mm. If you can get them thinking about that up front, then you can really generate some really good business cases as opposed to traditionally it tends to be thought of an afterthought. I, I come across so many cases where it's like, oh, we, you know, we, we put a chatbot out. Where are we going to get the content from? Oh, well, we've got, con- <laughs> we've got content all over the place. Yeah, it doesn't work because it's not the right sort of content for a chatbot. Or, you know, I, I've been involved with several um, augmented reality um, things where yeah, you've got great graphics and it looks really cool on this proof of concept. Where are you going to get the content from? Oh, well, we just hand-wrote it for this proof of concept. Okay, but you've got a 1,000 products in your product, in your, you produce a 1,000 products. So you, how are you going to get that content for those 1,000 products? Oh, yeah, okay, we didn't think about that. <laughs> so, yeah, if you think about it up front, well, perhaps if you structured it and you know, <laughs> um, and put the right information around it, you could do stuff with it. So again, it's a lot. A lot of it's really getting people to think about content up front and engineering the content, structuring the content, building things like metadata models and semantic models around it. Thinking about what they call stuff. What what. Uh, target markets it's going to go through. So those are sort of light bulb moments. You know, localization is always a good one because people are oh, you know, we're we're going global. Mm. You know, we're going to do it in Spanish. Which version of Spanish? What do you mean which version of Spanish? There's 32 versions of Spanish. If you're selling to Mexico, that's very different than selling to Spain. Uh, Oh. Um, (laughs) So, you know, um, it's sort of having those sort of conversations, getting asking a lot of those questions around, you know, what's the purpose of your content why are you creating it what's the audience what's the business need where's it going to go just as importantly where's it not going to go you know there are certain markets maybe you don't want or are not allowed for your content to go particularly you know working in the financial industry there are certain you know places that content is not allowed to go same within the healthcare. you know what's the review process how is it going to be reviewed you've got to think about all those things up front um So really a lot of the light bulb moments, particularly with sort of higher level sponsors, really do come from being able to put the business case around the content, either in terms, and generally not in terms of the cost of production, but the cost of maintenance, the cost of updates, the cost of delivery. And then, you know, ideally you want to get to the point where you can, I think we talked about this last time, where you can actually put value around it and say, you know, that that content is going to generate x amount of revenue Mm. or you know a certain percentage increase in revenue or bring bring you um you know more customers in a certain locale or in a certain segment um or you know it's going to reduce the amount of time that folks are on support calls because they're you know they're finding more of the right content that they need at the right time um or even looking at content that's within an organization if you start taking that holistic view you know could that content itself become a revenue generator have you got it amazes me the, the amount of companies we go into and we look at stuff and we're like, have you ever thought about licensing this out to somebody else, you know, other folks in your industry? Because is really good stuff. And it's like, oh, you mean we could – people would pay us money for the content that we've written for ourselves, probably. Mm. Um, so you, there, there are all those sort of aspects that you have to start thinking about if you start thinking about it from that holistic point of view. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of those light bulb moments really, at, to be honest, at the end of the day come down to
1: dollars. So. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess that makes sense, but it's interesting because you know it's it's the holidays here in the states, and I've opened up a lot of manuals and a lot of gifts in, in the past couple of months with you know multiple translations, and some of it is 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 just kind of hilarious, and I'm sure there's plenty of websites that'll document this as well. But it, it'll be interesting to see if that changes because it seems like the manuals that are being that are being shipped these days are thinner and thinner and well, they're thicker and thicker, but only because they're supporting multiple languages. And I wonder how they're all supporting that or if they're just not.
0: Um, yeah, I actually tend to find the ones where you get 11 languages on a tiny piece of paper folded up into, you know, um, in in the box, (laughs) um, tend to be some of the the worst stuff. Um, yeah. Um, and people never read those anyway. You know, you you tend to think about it. You know, more and more people are going for intuitive intuitive UI that then mm. really takes you to uh, you know, if you want deeper information, you can go find it. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, companies are uh, looking at you know, shipping less physic physical media uh, and putting people more to the website. Um, or even websites are declining now, aren't they? So it's, it's actually more towards, uh, you know, uh, mobile apps and social media stuff. Um, and actually mm. just presenting it in their own language. You know, I think we're really getting away from the idea of providing, you know, a document with every language in it to having a customer experience where the, the first interaction somebody has with your product or with your company is in their own language anyway.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: Um, mm. Rather, rather than, here's a thing in 11 languages, it's like, okay, you know, you've self-identified as a French speaker, here's everything in French online or on the app from from day one.
1: So, Well, that's a cool thought. I w- that's interesting because I've seen, um, you know, a lot of apps these days or a lot of like new phones or whatever, you know, you get you t- get it and you turn it on, it's got an overlay or it walks you through that. And I'm wondering if that's something that would be managed you know if that you know especially for translation purposes i wonder if that's man- being managed um you know centrally as well or if that's if that's structured or not that would be really interesting to see if it's like contextual like you say choose your language french okay the overlays are in french or japanese or english or whatever language that would be i wonder if i wonder if that's a thing
0: um yeah i think it is um, mm-hmm. um you know a lot of it is done by ip addresses from your your, your machines hmm. um which is a little bit of a a misnomer because uh somebody lives in a particular uh, laptop is is located in a particular country doesn't necessarily mean they're a native speaker of that country um Mm. not Not good uh you know it could be that you know you you know you're in the u.s but you you know your your native tongue is spanish but you're going to get it in english unless you you know identify um like like on the phone press one for english and two for spanish Um, but, uh, you know, if you think about it in Europe, uh, it's even more just because, you know, so- somebody lives in Germany doesn't necessarily mean they're a native German speaker. They could be a French engineer living and working in Germany, so they might <laughs> want to see stuff in French. Um, but at least it's the first step in terms of thinking about, you know, um, identifying where you are. But obviously, you know, if, if I think and this is sort of getting towards where we're, we're, we're verging into sort of creepy territory, but it, it happens because it happens with advertising. Um Based on your behaviour, we'll get to the point where it's Ugh. like, okay, you know, you're consistently selecting the French translation of a website. So why don't we just default to giving you the French first? <laughs> um, you know, um, because they know everything we do online anyway. Um, right. Well,
1: I mean, but that's a useful, that's a useful, you know, that's a useful way to do that, to use that information. I mean, you know, there's various reasons on all these social media sites that are taking. You know all your information, and who the hell knows what they're doing with it. Okay, maybe it's smart enough to say, "Hey, you're in Germany. You've got a German IP address, but it looks like you're losing using everything in your browser in French. We'll make French your default. That I think would people would find useful, and that might be a good example yeah. of customer experience. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. So, uh, and, you know, and, and part of that comes comes down to uh, you know also understanding the culture of your customers. Um, mm. You know, when oh. I. When I worked at uh, at Caterpillar, um, the equipment manufacturers, you know, if you look at their website and go to the um, language choices for Africa, you'll see Chinese in there. Um, cool. And it's like, why would we supply Chinese for the African website? Well, understanding the industry and the culture, actually, the large proportion of the construction workers in Africa are Chinese, cool. uh, are Chinese immigrants. So... Um, that's why you see Chinese on the Caterpillar website for Africa. Um, so, again, it's, it's, it's sort of understanding your customers, understanding the culture, understanding, um, you know, your industry and the audience that you're trying to actually engage with as well um, and provide that experience in the right language. So.
1: Huh. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's almost 2019. Uh, I'm going to wish you and everyone listening a happy new year, even though by the time this is out. It'll be probably past then, but um, what's looking forward? What are you looking forward to in 2019? I know you're uh, pretty prolific on the side. or you have any books or anything coming out? What uh, what's happening with you in the future here? Alan?
0: Um, okay, well, keeping with the with the uh, the content industry stuff, um, the one thing I'm actually really looking forward to is I'm actually running for vice president of STC in 2019.
1: Hey, congratulations.
0: Thank you. Well, I got through the nomination. Or phase. Good luck. <laughs> um, so that's going to be interesting. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, um, been getting consistently more involved with the STC, um, over the last couple of years, uh, and um, sort of currently, uh, on the board of the Houston chapter, but also, um, looking forward to being able to sort of, uh, serve nationally, hopefully, and, and give something back to, uh, to the STC, which has been a, you know, a great supporter for the 20 plus years I've been here and the ISTC when I was back in the UK. So I've been a member of both organizations for a long time. So, uh, really looking forward to that opportunity to, to hopefully serve there. So, uh, with it, a we uh, are continuing to grow. Uh, we have some fairly um, aggressive targets for next year, but I think we will meet those in terms of the uh, the, the, the clients. I'm the, the uh, a lot of the clients we engaged with last year were continuing on into 2019. I'm doing an ongoing strategic consulting engagement with with one client. I'm, very passionate and involved with which is great looking forward to continuing that work um and growing my team and, and growing our client base today and taking on some new and challenging and uh, interesting projects with some some major major companies going forward so uh, that that's going to be fun continuing the educational side of things um and then uh, outside of that uh you, you said about books, I'm sit here staring at the manuscripts of the book. My wife and I have been working on for five years, which we have <laughs> <laughs> promised ourselves that we would get finished in 2019. We have a publisher lined up. So, um, that needs to get done. We're, we're probably eight, 90% of the way through getting the, the, the manuscript polished, but, uh, that's, that's gotta be finished this year. Um, so, uh, hopefully we'll get that out and hopefully we'll get it published in 2019. If not, maybe 2020. um, And just had actually just had a new book, uh, an essay come out, come out in a book just snuck under the wire for 2018, um, an essay in a anthology celebrating 40 years of Battlestar Galactica. So, oh jeez, somewhere somewhere in the heavens, Battlestar Galactica. Take it. You can find it on Amazon, Um, and we were actually number one in science fiction books the day after release on Amazon, Um, or in science fiction. Criticism books. I think we were number one the day after release, so that that was pretty cool. It was a, that was a good Christmas present? Um,
1: wow, nice. That yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I, mean, I was God the original one. I was with Boxy and and everyone. I you know you know Starbuck and Apollo and everybody. That was I was like prime age for that back then, and I love that show. I could not get enough of it. I never got into the new one. My wife did, but I never never really got into the new one that much. Oh, but, well,
0: um, I was more into the new one of my essays about the uh, the. Much maligned, a uh, controversial um, finale of the new one. So, oh. um, so yeah, I got, I got that. Um, I think that's, and I suppose I really should finish the book I'm meant to be writing for XML Press too. Um, so, Richard, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's funny. I was going to say, Hey, Richard, by the way. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, it was good talking to you again. You know, this is the last thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I know you also have a IndyCar and Formula One podcast that you do. Yeah, I think you're going to pick that up a little bit more. But it's interesting. You know, we spoke a year ago before the IndyCar and F1 seasons uh, came along. But I I, I went and listened back to our, our prior conversation. And um, you predicted for Formula One, you predict, uh, predicted Lewis Hamilton, I predicted Sebastian Vettel, who was my sentimental favorite. And of course, uh, you were right with that one.
0: Oh, good. That's good. And
1: then um, with uh, the 2018 IndyCar series, I was actually at Pocono and Sonoma this year. And oh my God, Sonoma, if you've not been, well, they're not going to be there next year, but what a great place to see a race.
0: Uh, i've been to the track but not actually for a race i i stopped by there one time when we were in the area but uh yeah
1: yeah the most amazing thing was i'm driving and i, I rented a miata because i had to um i drive a miata
0: I, so you're fine there's nothing wrong with that i drive a miata so. oh,
1: <laughs> I, I could not believe how responsive that car i had so much fun driving in northern california um but it's crazy because sonoma racetrack you go into it and one side of the mountain there's like sheep and and cattle and stuff on the side of this mountain and on the other side is the racetrack and it's just crazy that this is this is northern california um but it was a great place to see a racetrack and now i've done some some hot lapping in my sim racing with it but um interesting enough you said that your favorite was rossi alexander rossi this year uh but you said you know what scott dixon will probably end up winning it so you know what you were absolutely right
0: Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad because I could not remember what I'd said back in January. So, um. <laughs> well, so
1: yeah, it's so funny to listen to it. Of course, I'm, uh, you know, I said willpower and I'm actually wearing my willpower shirt that I got from Sonoma today. Um, and uh, uh, my and, sentimental uh, favorite was Sebastian Bourdais. Um, willpower won a very triumphant Indianapolis 500, so I will take that. But uh, Dixon, of course, had another spectacular, consistent, amazing year as he always does. Yeah. So maybe oh, I will see you at the track.
0: Well, oh, if you do, we'll have to get together for more than just at the track. But uh, yeah, well, that's we're... for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I hear a. Uh, I hear there's a good uh, beer, uh, good beer, beer selection, selection there in Austin, in Austin, Texas.
0: Oh, we have a ton of microbreweries. Yes, my, and my son-in-law is a, a beer critic, so he can uh, he can get show you show you around here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, right. That's what that's what he did at college. He was the beer critic for the for the college uh, magazine. <laughs>
1: When I was in college, there was not much to review. It was uh, (laughs) how how cheap beer can you get? What is the cheapest beer that you can get? So I guess times really have changed.
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah, so yeah, that would be cool. Thank you for plugging the podcast. If any of any folks want to listen to that, you can find it. We we are part of the. It's called Open Wheel, and we are part of the White Rocket uh, Entertainment Network. So if you just Google White Rocket Entertainment, you will find the Open Wheel podcast on the feed there.
1: All right. Awesome. Well, I think we have enough here. It's been a long, uh, a long time between recordings, but I think, uh, you know, it's been interesting to see how your role has changed from just starting at A to, uh, to finishing things up. So Alan, thanks again for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your patience, uh, on take two or take three or whatever take this was. So uh, thanks again. <laughs> uh, you know, it was really cool to be, you know, really cool to be able to see you in LavaCon and meet you actually in person for the first time. Um, but always great to talk to you.
0: It's always great to talk Ed and I'm looking forward to see how you actually uh, edit these two together <laughs> That uh, yeah,
1: should be interesting i'm uh, it's going to be creative so um, well I've got a free weekend we'll see what happens <laughs> <laughs> All right. um, where can we find you online? Where are the best places to uh, to reach out to you
0: okay uh, tech pubs wise or content wise you can find me on Twitter at, at the content pool or okay. the content pool dot com here's my sort of techcom Um, website and and Twitter and personally you can find me at Alan J. Porter on Twitter or alanjporter.com it actually has all my uh, writing stuff and links to all my various uh, online activities
1: excellent well thanks again Um, you can of course find me on Twitter at Ed Marsh and at edmarsh.com you could subscribe to the content content podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio and the Google Play Music Podcast store uh, we have our first review, so please go check it out and uh, write us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know maybe some future guests or give us some feedback. We would love it. Um, you can always go to edmarsh.com slash podcast to subscribe using your favorite podcasting client.